Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I feel like we should go back and listen. This is uh, episode 76. Gosh, is it really? Right? Yeah, just keep on cranking through these things, huh? I quit. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's all done. I'm washing my hands is of it, it. Is it really episode 76? Oh, it's actually more than that if we count the film board. But just of yep. the shows? Yep. Is it? Yep. So this is show 76. Yep. And we're starting to talk about 1976. <gasps> what? How on earth did that happen? Oh, Andy. It was... <laughs> no. No, wait, stop. So isn't it great that we totally scheduled to be talking about our 1970s, starting on our 76th show, right? That was fantastically well thought out by us. We've been planning it since the beginning. I'm not going to do one of those dumb things like we did last week where we came to this great epiphany about the four movies in the (laughs) sci-fi after we did them all like idiots. (sighs) Oh, man. Yeah, we we really planned this one out. Man, that's great. (laughs) Yay us. (laughs) Go us. Uh, That's priceless. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, uh, This is the film board, everybody. No, it's not. It's not. It's not the film board. You should do it. Go ahead. Do do the. Welcome everybody to the next reel. Uh, We're thrilled to have you here. Uh, This is a place we uh, talk about movies. I'm Andy Nelson, and on the other end is Pete Wright. We uh, love chatting about movies. We talk about all kinds of movies, and uh, we definitely spoil movies. We're uh, we usually don't care too much because they're usually older movies. And if you haven't seen it, go rent it and then listen to us talk about it. And uh, we think they're all pretty great for the most part. We've had a few that we don't, but for the most part, we like every movie we talk about. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's a new little addition. (laughs) That's right. It's like qualifying our experience together. That's right. That's right. Uh, We definitely love, uh, you know, talking with all of you out there listening to us. So if you uh, want to shoot us an email or give us a phone call and leave us a wonderful message that we might play on the air, um, you can go to our website, thenextreel.com, and click on our contact page. You can get all the information right there for uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, phone number, all that sort of stuff. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Also, we love uh, you know getting feedback on iTunes. That's how more people find us. So if you go to, over to iTunes and you can uh, rate our show and leave us a review, we'd love it. And uh, you know that's how more people find us. So... I think that's it, right? Yeah, no, that's it. I run through everything. Yeah, no, that's good. And it definitely uh, the the Facebook thing. Welcome to all of our newer uh, uh, Facebook, particularly our newer international uh, Facebook uh, uh, listeners. Uh, we sure appreciate you liking the page, and it's uh, it's it's uh, great to see all these countries represented in our 
list of listeners. So uh, welcome, everybody. And we're going to try to be um, more sensitive, not make uh, as many jokes about Australia. Criminals. You said oh, it. And sorry. I think, don't you have an Australian passport? Aren't you some sort of dual citizen? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So what am I saying about myself? Right. Criminal. See, but that's it's totally why not true. I, that's, that's why I can say that, because I am one. Isn't that how it works? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's how it works on everything. <laughs> Every, you name it. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we, what's your, uh, what's your, do we, we got to, oh, man, I hate to bring it down. I feel like we're on kind of a roll. Man, well, there's some harsh news today. It really was really, really hit hard today. Uh, Roger Ebert passed away, 70 years old. Um, amazing film critic, author. Uh, you know, he was fantastic. You know, he his his criticism was always very interesting and insightful. Even in, even if I didn't always agree with everything that he said, he really was a passionate lover of film, and he really was uh, one of the predominant people to bring film and film criticism into popular culture. Uh, with his uh, TV show that he did with Gene Siskel, and uh, it really kind of started a big trend of of film criticism. And and to this day, I think there's a lot of you know online bloggers and and uh, you know podcasters all around the world who are probably uh, you know owe him a debt of gratitude for the uh, doors that he opened and for the uh, the passion that he inspired. He. Uh... He was incredibly prolific. I mean, I think it's uh, clocked. He was reviewing 300 movies a year. Yeah. Um, and in, in addition to substantive writing on, on his blog through the Sun-Times and RogerEbert.com and uh, incredibly prolific and enormously, really fundamentally talented writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, this is, uh, he was, you could tell he was quite a student of language and, and, uh, in addition to just being prolific himself, he, uh, he really cultivated, I think, a generation of criticism, uh, from, you know, young critics that you can see, uh, kind of grew up in the, in the Ebert school. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's just fantastic to see what he did. It's a, it's a real loss. And it, it's one of, you know, what hit me the hardest is you, you, when you run into these guys, right. Who, that, that are, they seem so close to you in both their sort of celebrity uh, and uh, personality mm-hmm. uh, that you feel like they're, they're, they're kind of kindred spirits. Right. Uh, that there will never be a time when they aren't creating. Right. Yeah. And, and in this business, that was that was Roger Ebert. And, and I think just in, in the business of newspapering, uh, you know, of, of um, as a journalist, he's he is going to be, you know, missed. Yeah. 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 He came to uh, 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 my film noir class that I had in college and talked. And, you know, he's just a, he was a great uh, guy, just really fun uh, speaker, too, aside from writer, but just very. Um, very open and talkative and funny and uh, real wit about him. And uh, it was great being in a place where, you know, he was uh, where, where I got to, you know, be that, uh, uh, I guess, personal or, uh, you know, in a situation like that with him. So, yeah, it's definitely going to be missed. Okay. Speaking of things that are downers, 
why don't you go first? <laughs> Let's talk about your trailer. Yeah, my trailer this week is, uh, you know, it's for a film that's that is in some theaters around the country. It's also on iTunes and on demand. You can just uh, you can get it right now, and it's called A Place at the Table. Uh, the people who brought you uh, Food Inc., the documentary about the food industry, uh, have made this documentary about the plight of hunger that we have in our country. Um, uh, Tom Calicio is uh, in it. He's uh, the top chef guy. Um, he, you know, and along with Jeff Bridges and, uh, uh, just a number of other, uh, people in our, uh, country, big names are in this film uh, talking about the, the state of hunger, particularly uh, with children and how, um, one in four children don't know where their next meal is coming from. It's, it's a really tough film, uh, a, a tough story to, to absorb and hearing, the facts that even just the trailer brings up. I mean, it, it really hits home and you realize, you know, our country is one where back in, I, I think it said, what was it, like the, the 50s, there was a documentary about hunger and it really changed uh, people's opinions and the government really started pushing these programs to help end hunger. And by the 70s, it was almost eradicated and then something changed and all of a sudden, you know, now there's a lot more poverty and what happens is people who are poor, they have to buy really cheap food. Unfortunately, cheap food is not healthy. And so all of a sudden we've become this country that is populated with, with um, people who are in poverty and starving who are obese. And it's, it's this strange plight that our country has all of a sudden been plummeted into because people are eating such bad food when they're, when they're poor. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting film. And, you know, there's, this is a week that there's a lot of great trailers out there. Um, but you know, I just, I, this, I saw this trailer and it was just something that I felt I wanted to bring to the table. I felt, uh, it's definitely something that more people, uh, need to watch and, uh, and check out. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, if you have seen Food Inc. and King of Corn and, uh, you know, any of these food exposés, they tend to, they, they capture it from the, the perspective of, um, you know, what the food is doing to us. And I think what is so compelling about this project is, um, you know, it, it sort of turns the proverbial table mm-hmm. um, on that argument. It says, you know what, it's, it, it, it's this, we really need to wake up to this issue of economy, not, not only the economy of the industry of food, but the economy uh, of our population and, and accessibility to good food. Yeah. And it, I, you know, I just wish there was more, uh, politicking in favor of good food rather than cheap food yeah. and making this, this garbage that people eat. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough situation. So, um, yeah, definitely check the trailer out. And, and, you know, like I said, the film is on demand on iTunes, so uh, you can go watch it right now. You should do that. Definitely. Uh, I, uh, have, am not uh nearly so inspiring. <laughs> That's all right. Bring us up a little bit. <laughs> I I'm I don't know why I'm excited about this movie at all. It is not my kind of movie. Uh, I generally, uh, well, I generally tend to stay away from these sorts of movies. But this one is uh, it's called The Purge, uh, and it is uh, a new film from James DeMonaco. Uh, James Monaco is not, uh, he hasn't directed much, uh, but he is known for, uh, as a, a screenwriter for writing uh, 
films such as uh, Staten Island. Well, he directed and wrote Staten Island, mm-hmm. uh, Skinwalkers, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, uh, The Negotiator, uh, and uh, originally wrote uh, Jack, hmm. uh, the Robin Williams um, and Francis, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola directed Robin Williams film from 1996. That's a shame. It, it, well, right? <laughs> and yet, so the concept of this movie, I think, is so fascinating. Uh, so the, the civilization has been sort of reborn, and there is unemployment at 1%. There is no crime. Uh, everything is fantastic in the world, and it's all... It's not a comedy. It's not a comedy. It's, it's not. not a funny. It's not funny. It's not funny. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, it, so one night each year, this one horrifying night called the Purge, where for twelve hours, all crime, it, or, or the, it's not it, it, all emergency services are suspended. Right. right. It's not and like crime. crime is suddenly legal. It's just that nobody is looking for yeah, one nobody, night. Right. You can get away with anything because nobody's looking and there's no prosecution. There's you just can't get you can't be seen or get caught doing anything. So whatever. And so there's just they just tear the place up. And the whole concept is that, you know, supposedly this one night, this one purge, this emotional dark streak purge will uh, uh, that that makes you better the rest of the year. And so (laughs) I got the the part of the reason I brought it up is because it's Ethan Hawke. Uh, That's is right. the dad in this movie. We talked about Ethan Hawke and Gattaca last week, and it sort of closes the loop on his career. Uh, and <laughs> uh, so uh, he plays the dad in this film, and, and um, they have this kind of mansion with the big steel doors, and and the ch- one of the children opens the doors during the purge to let in one of the you know people running, and uh, apparently that person running was the target of this year's purge. And so... Uh, a whole group of miscreants show up wearing, I have to imagine, a, a comic uh, Killian Murphy masks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they come up to collect. And it's it's the, the fun and hijinks and mayhem that ensues when they start tearing that house apart on the night of The Purge. You know, Ethan Hawke has had a few of these uh, lately. He, did, he had Sinister, yep. that horror film that came out a little bit ago. The Woman in the Fifth, which we also talked about on the show mm-hmm. a little while ago, was kind of that odd, weird little ghost sort of story or something going on there. <laughs> right. Daybreakers. Didn't He's that, really kind of that taking this whole turn. That would came out with uh, in parallel. That was another one of those Hollywood double di- double downs, right? Yeah, exactly. With uh, Val Kilmer's uh, thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yep. Yep. Uh, yes. All of the, <laughs> all the above <laughs> for old, uh, old Ethan. Yeah. That is funny. Oh, it's good. It's good. good. Job. Yeah, so I'm excited about this one. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out when it's uh, when it's actually coming out. Um, I don't when know. When is it actually coming out? The Purge. Uh, I'm not seeing it. So whatever. Soon. It's coming. Coming soon. soon. Oh, May, thir- uh, May 31st. There you go. May 31st, 2013. Uh, and we should say a little celebration that G.I. Joe Retaliation is finally playing in theaters. <laughs> so that my God, we will stop seeing trailer teasers for it, and we won't have to talk about it anymore. No, except when you bring it up again. <laughs> this is the last time that I'm just seeing because they've done this IMDb site takeover here. It's just ridiculous. Be oh, done yeah. with that movie. 
Really, mine was the Jurassic Park takeover when I went. Oh, was it? Yeah. Fascinating. See, I got the better takeover. Hmm. All right. Uh, All right. That's what. That's what I. That's what I got. So we have this. Uh, we have this movie to talk about. Yeah, 1976. Let's start. First of all, tell me. Tell me why. Why did we choose 1976? You know, it, it's looking at. I think it all started when we did our. Um, our series with uh, all the president's men, right? We had the uh, the uh, Clute, par- the Parallax View, and all the president's men. It was a, a great little series that um, uh, Pakula, Alan J. Pakula did, um, an unintended series, but a, kind of this uh, uh, paranoia trilogy that they kind of named it. Um, looking at the films that came out in 1976, all the president's men being one of them, I was just kind of stunned at uh, how many great films came out that year. And I just it just got me thinking, I'm like, gosh, we should really look at, uh, aside from All the President's Men, which is just a fabulous, fabulous film, all these other films that came out that year are just so worth talking about. I just look at the films that were nominated for Best Picture, look at the other popular films that came out that year. It's it's a year of great great films, and I, I feel like you know honestly this is a series that could go on much longer than you know what we're going to do. But um, really, that's that's what it was. Just looking at the great films that came out that year, it just realized you know we have a lot of stuff that we could talk about in that year alone. I think that's uh, that that is sort of the pinnacle year of the seventies, and I think what was what we discovered. Or, or, or at least what we were celebrating in in our, our previous '70s sort of uh, in the Paranoia trilogy uh, mm-hmm. was this transformation uh, in filmmaking that occurred uh, in the '70s. This sort of cultural right. transformations, very gritty and and high, and just sort of this trans transition to the you know what this interpretation of real uh, and uh, you know uh, dealing with um, poverty and grit and uh, I, I think in in a way that we hadn't seen um, prior to that, right. in, in quite right. the same way. And and I, I that you know watching Marathon Man, which we're kicking off this series, I think really um, it just took me back to such a great place. Yeah, uh, such a great place watching this film. Uh, a film directed by John Schlesinger. <laughs> I think is what you're trying John to say. John Schlesinger. <laughs> That's a it gol- is a mouthful. Isn't that a golf company, Schle- Schlesinger? I think it is. Oh, I found a hat it? on a highway that I literally stopped my car and picked up this hat. I still have this hat. I washed this hat. It's a great hat, and it's a Schlesinger hat. Are you sure it wasn't his? Well, I mean, it was embossed, like embroidered. It wasn't like <laughs> handwritten. This oh, okay. is John Schlesinger's <laughs> hat. <laughs> Uh, it was based on the book by William Goldman, uh, fantastic, legendary William Goldman. Uh, he he wrote the book and then adapted his own screenplay. Right. Uh, and we'll talk about what that means. Uh, stars Dustin Hoffman, Laurence Olivier, the horrifying Laurence Olivier. Yeah. The always hunktastic <laughs> Roy Scheider. Our uh, favorite '70s guy. Our favorite, our favorite '70s guy. Uh, the uh, the always puzzling Bill Devane and Marta Keller uh, as the damsel, and uh, 
it is uh, uh well yeah why don't you do you want to go ahead and and do your best to summarize the uh the the plot for us um yeah i'll just do a just try a quick, to do a, just a quick a one quick quick summary um a a marathon a man training for a marathon um gets uh who who's a student he's a pacifist his father had had been um had killed himself after being accused of being a uh, a communist in the McCarthy hearings um finds himself stuck in this situation uh partly because of his brother who turns out to be a spy um is is kind of a courier for this this Nazi war criminal who's um patterned after Mengele the uh what was Mengele's nickname the um oh uh, um I, I, the, uh, I had it the doctor of death or something like that yeah uh, yeah, so uh, patterned after Mengele, um, who's coming to New York to get all of these diamonds that he uh, basically got after uh, pulling all the fillings and everything from all the the Jews in the concentration camps. So this this um, Nazi criminal is coming to New York to get these diamonds. Um, he's been killing off all of his couriers, one of which is is Doc uh, is Doc uh, Babe's brother. And um, Babe then somehow gets embroiled in this whole thing. They think he is tapped into the whole situation and knows if, you know, what, what's going on. And so now they're after him. And he basically has to fight for his life to avoid getting killed by this Nazi war criminal and his henchmen. Angel of death. Angel of death. That's what they called him. Right. Right. Uh, so that's my quick little rundown. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> thrilling i'm uh i'm roped in i i want to see it more than ever uh so let's talk can we just i want to start with the opening because if, there, <laughs> if there's anything is uh, is this film sort of hangs on the first 10 minutes yeah it's it's a great opening it's, it's a terrible opening no, it's it great. is the it's... dumbest of the dumb <laughs> are you talking specifically about the act the crash yes Okay, I, I of the we, chase of the guy yes. with the car stalled and the two we got the old man, the old Jewish man, and the old Nazi, and they're yelling at each other in their cars, and the old Jewish guy goes berserk and right. starts smashing into the back of his car and it, and ends up doing a crazy chase based on it was hot outside and right. he had a problem and the, it, it is totally insane. Uh, it is. I don't want right. to say You're it's right. implausible. Though it is, <laughs> it's. <laughs> you're right. It is a little over the top. It is a little. little over the top. Like you, you really, if you if you haven't seen this movie, just take it from me. There's a German uh, courier who uh, dies, and start ten minutes into the film. Don't watch the beginning because you'll think, why in why am I watching this movie? It is dumb. Why would I watch this, this stupid thing? It's it is over the top. I, I I will give it to you. It is. I I don't know. I just I, I enjoy the uh, the thing that I find interesting about it is it it puts this it instantly creates this tension between the, the this ongoing tension between uh, Germans and Jews that still probably was existing and because of the whatever the the hatred was still from World War Two. And this particular German who, as soon as he realizes that the guy behind him is Jew, 
uh, is a Jew, and he starts like spouting off, you know, just lots of awful things at him in German, and and it just created a very interesting tension between the two. Now the chase becomes a little silly. The fact that these two old guys are are racing down the road and they crash into a conveniently backing up gas truck, it's a little over the top. It's a little hard to believe. <laughs> Um, but I, but I, but what I like about it is that you're getting this this setup for the '70s. You know, World War II has been over for a while, but you're still seeing that there's these tensions out there. And another interesting thing that I like that doesn't really factor into that particular situation, but the fact that it's happening on Yom Kippur and you have just you know all these Jewish people all over the place on the streets, you know. Right. Um, walking around it's it was an interesting element that they also threw into the the scene so i i like a lot of elements of it and yes you're right the actual chase itself and the crash and everything is just it's it's a little silly but but there's things in it that I, and i maybe give that maybe that's why i'm giving it a little more of a break well uh, <laughs> yeah i uh, i have i just had a hard time giving it a break because of the comical nature of this ridiculous uh, of the ridiculous like contrived action yeah um and and i get I, I i get what you're saying right i mean these guys are at that age where i mean the war had been over for you know 35 years mm-hmm. and uh and so they're at that age where 35 years earlier they were in the war or in in some capacity right. right likely yeah and uh and so i i get that there is that sense of uh, we're we're looking for that sense of context and i think they i i think and as you know we said before we started recording neither of us have actually read the william goldman book uh marathon man and so i i don't know how how close to the book this particular sequence is it is insane to me that it exists and I think that uh, uh, I, I think that it's uh, it, it's awfully flimsy to hang the rest of the film on. You really have to put put an awful lot up. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. You gotta. It's it's one of those scenes that I mean, no matter what, you have to in order to start the story, you have to find a way for yeah. this German to die because he is the brother of Christian Zell the uh the character patterned after Mengele who is hiding away in the jungles of Uruguay. You know, here's the thing. He needs he needs to the the before the car chase. The brother is the as the courier goes into this bank vault and he mm-hmm. he goes and he gets the thing and he he pulls out a little band-aid case that jingles suspiciously like diamonds. Mm-hmm. Uh and he puts That's it in I keep his my pocket. diamonds. Of course you do. <laughs> Uh, and so he puts in his pocket, there's a little handoff thing, like they just, there's, it's very spy stuff, and he gets in his car and he drives, he drives away. What should have happened is uh, he walks out of the bank and a piano falls on his head. <laughs> that would have been a smarter... <laughs> and, and, then you, and then you look up and there's a guy in a black suit with actually wearing a black, like, Lone Ranger mask. There you go. That would have made it a better open. <laughs> the well, rest okay. of the movie is quite good. Yeah. It it <laughs> it it's it is a little it is a little rough. It's an anvil says Acme on it. 
He walks off a cliff. <laughs> he falls, and he's just no, he's walking he, through the air. He falls in an he a, in a manhole. He finally, but he doesn't fall immediately. Not until he no. looks down and realizes. Zoinks! All right, all right. No, let's let's talk that. about this some more. I like this. Co- I like this topic. Oh, okay. So that, after that, the extra bit people can download. <laughs> they can just hear you talk about how they should all have the different ways the they should have killed the brother. Right. <laughs> so yes. Okay. So brother Zell dies. Right. Yeah. So, so the rest of that. So that that gets us into the uh, that gets us into the rest of the story. So that that is the inciting incident. But it goes to this point of of you know the having having these strong kind of action oriented opens and and uh, once you get through that like this is this is a film that I don't think necessarily needs uh, needed that kind of kind of kind of prelude because it is it is um, I think tonally out of context with the rest of the film which is smart and incredibly well paced and well performed by everybody. Uh, that that hits the screen. Um, uh, it's just a generally smart film. So after that, we are introduced to our um, our uh, the dashingly young uh, Dustin Hoffman. Young, but not as young as he plays. <laughs> right. I mean, he's how 40. old was he? He he's was forty when he's making this. Right. And he's playing a grad student. Totally doesn't look so. forty though. Totally gets away with no, it. No, he looks a lot younger. Yeah. You're right. He does play younger. Um, but he does a great job in this role. It's a it's a great role for him, and it's I I don't know. He brings a lot to the table, I think, and I I really enjoy watching him in the film. Yeah, uh, he is. Uh, what what I love about this film, and I love about his arc in particular, is that I think this movie exemplifies um, so much of the uh, uh, kind of the impossible journey, right? He is wrapped up in this story that is not his. He has no uh, stake. He has no awareness of what's going on around him. He just gets caught up in it uh, and, you know, jumps to the end where he ends, the, the film ends with nothing but a ratty hoodie. And there is there is no opportunity for him to celebrate. He didn't get the girl. He didn't walk away with the money. He almost died at the hands of a Nazi war criminal. Uh, and he didn't even run his first marathon. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I think what's interesting about him, and, and this is uh, something I really enjoy about the film, is we, we get this sense of him kind of being this pacifistic character. And he's, he's this grad student who we learn is in a way trying to use his um his opportunities at 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 school to essentially kind of defend his father against the tyranny of McCarthy and all that and his professor even brings that up you know it's like you can't you know the, you're not going to succeed you're not going to be able to do that you need to find your own shoes and you need to be able to step in your own shoes whatever he says it's a great little speech but we can see that this character babe uh is very stuck on on trying to do that. And it's almost like he's dwelling in the past and he's, he's kind of got this, um, pacifistic nature, it seems. And he's, you know, he, he's not the sort of guy who seems violent, but there's this competitive edge to him that you see like right at the start when this other Mm -hmm. runner passes him 
and uh, he and says some snide remark and he feels the need to like chase the guy down and try to beat him right right and so it's it's this interesting and fail uh, and, and fail, fail. right yeah. exactly and and uh, yeah he finally has to give up cuz he just can't do it and it, you see this interesting uh battle within him of of that drive to compete and to beat somebody else with you know i i i'm i want to you know defend the innocent and i want to you know, kind of that more pacifistic and he keeps the gun that his father killed himself with in his desk drawer yeah. and it, it's almost like a symbol that you know that he's kind of keeping away and it's not until later in the film when Interestingly, it's in his desk drawer that, you know, his desk is this thing that's just buried in paperwork for his his thesis that he's doing this this defense against the tyranny of the McCarthy era that destroyed his father. Um, and it's not until later that essentially he kind of trades one for the other and he and he becomes the guy with the gun who's who's going out there now. Um, although even though once he once he gets to the end, it's almost like he does. He realizes that it's not going to help him. And I think that's what I find so interesting about him as a character and his his arc as a character. And I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place in the script and totally no, you just have to right to the you, end. But yeah, you have to. And I, I just to to jump right on that. I, I think that uh, I think you're absolutely right. There, are, what is so interesting about what he demonstrates like his actions uh you know the the competitive nature of of you know wanting to take power in these in these relationships whether it's him with the, this uh, other runner or him with his brother or uh you know in their little wrestling match you know when he when he hits his brother just a little bit too hard you his brother right. says ow you know you can tell that there is that kind of animosity uh and yet when it comes time to really shine uh, he's sitting in class and he's asked a question by his professor and he writes the answer on right. the, his notepad but does not say it, even though his professor and he, they both know, they're aware that he knows the answer. Right. He keeps his mouth shut. This is his chance to demonstrate that he is in a position of power and he doesn't choose to take it. Right. It's only, he's only choosing to go for it in, in these in these challenges in which he loses, and I think Christian Zell says it uh, in you know when he's got uh, uh, Babe tied up. Uh, you're weak. Your father was weak in his way. Your brother in his, and now you in yours. Uh, and I think he is. He really is right when you look at what the um, at what the family has done. I mean, here you have the father who took his own life as a result of of you know these accusations uh as and and here we're seeing that as a sign of weakness refusing yeah. refusing the the good fight um he has chosen to refuse the a babe has chosen to refuse the good fight and you know we you know i think we can make an argument one way or the other about uh, uh roy scheider although yeah. he was he's a pretty sharp dude and man when he gets his hand cut Ooh. This movie ruins me for garrots <laughs> and dentists. <laughs> uh, and All of those only, things. Not only that, but that is truly one of the creepiest assassins. Yeah. With the, mean, the mannequin boy? With, with the his, eye, with, plastic eyes? <laughs> yeah, with the, with the eye that's just like the dead eye. Yeah. And then the way that his face just like presses into right. the, the curtain as it's blowing. It's like, oh... 
creepy, 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 creepy. He is so creepy. It it is it is <laughs> it was so creepy. Uh, I well anyway, I I really think that um, uh, I really think that's one of the things that makes that makes uh, let's just say the family that we follow here such an interesting choice, right? Yeah, right. Because it is not the 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 winning family. Right. Right. It's a family that strives to win and generally doesn't. Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's what I kind of get out of this. And it makes it an interesting choice for us to follow dramatically. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, there was a scene that was cut from the film um, that it sounds like an interesting an interesting scene that happened um, that dealt with more with Roy Scheider's character with Doc. Um, it, I think it happened toward the beginning of the film, and it was it was him kind of going a little berserk because some some men kill a colleague of his, and he kind of just loses it and goes nuts and and kills these other guys and has has this big fight and everything. And it was a it was a scene that William Goldman himself um, really felt was important, and he was upset that they cut it. Um, and it's and it is in the book. But he felt like it was a uh, an important thing to see because it does make Roy Scheider's character Doc seem less the hero, seem less the perfect guy that we kind of see in this film is like this this great spy and he just everything he's just kind of always on on the ball and until he until he does get killed by by Zell. But it it changes that a little bit and. I think that fits right in with this family of just these people who just they don't quite have it all together and they they aren't always on the the winning side of things. Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, and yeah. and I think that's that gets to one of the uh, one of the key things that we're kind of uncovering about the uh, the 70s and this choice uh in the cultural kind of interpretation of family and of people is that, you know, here we're going to be looking at some characters that don't have it all together in a, in a, a much more kind of substantive way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And we have decades prior. It's it, yeah. And the seventies, I mean, that documentary, did you end up watching the, uh, the I haven't got, I haven't gotten through all three hours of it yet, but I, yeah, I'm in a, the middle of it. But it's a great documentary, A Decade yeah. Under the Influence, talking about the 70s and the change that was going on in our, our country and why this kind of uh, vibe shifted within film as far as making things that were more personal, more gritty, um, dealing with more, uh, you know, uh, real situations. You know, uh, it it came after, you know, a lot of the films of the the musicals and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And uh, people were needing a change and needed to get kind of grounded in reality a little more. And, and uh, that's something I find so fascinating in this film is, is all of these elements that, that really do kind of ground it into reality. It is moments like the family and how they have these, these uh, elements of, of uh, losing that we're going on with. Also things just like, like I was saying at the beginning, the whole uh, opening scene happening during Yom Kippur, I think it's fascinating that when uh, Doc is in Paris, you've got this this you know, this protest going on. These environmentalists are biking everywhere, protesting the transportation stuff. You've got this uh, when Zell arrives in New York. the The baggage handlers are on strike, and the baggage is just everywhere. Mm -hmm. All of these these interesting situations going on everywhere. I, I find it so fascinating that they they chose to. Um, and I, I again, I, I haven't read the book. I don't know if it, if, if it is this way in the book, but I, I find it interesting that they ground it in reality in these 
interesting ways where you've got just crisis going on everywhere, you know, all these demonstrations and strikes and strife, uh, all this interesting stuff. And then on top of that, I found it really interesting that there's a lot of things that happen in the film and it's almost like people um, are closing themselves off to it and they don't want to acknowledge things that are happening. You've got the the guy who sees Roy Scheider getting attacked in the in the uh, hotel in the across hotel, the right, way. The balcony now, wheelchair now, guy. Right, right. And he seems to care, but he tells his uh, the lady who helps him or whatever. And she kind of looks up and, you know, she kind of dismisses it and just goes back inside. Um, it's just, it, that's kind of the mentality people have. Even when the woman on the street recognizes Zell and, Zell and starts screaming at him, and and she's like, "Is nobody going to help me? I got to do it myself." And everybody's just kind of passive about it. It's an interesting look at how people become passive in these crisis situations. And it's just like, you know, it's not affecting me. I'm not going to worry about it. And they kind of move on by until somebody gets hurt. And right, it's, well, that I, was interesting. That's an interesting point. The, you know, the old lady when the old lady is chasing Zell, and nobody moves, no matter how much she screams, until she falls down in front of the taxi. Right, uh, which is uh, you're, that's fascinating. Yeah, it, nobody cares. Nobody it's just cares. like it's not it's not affecting me. So hmm. it's just interesting little elements that the story is grounded in. Well, that, and you know what uh, the, you know what it does. It does an interesting thing too with the um, uh, with the the setup, particularly Roy, Roy Scheider's character, because in this whole sort of first act, as we're kind of learning what Roy Scheider is doing and and his um, you know his role. Um, his place in the landscape, I'm thinking particularly about the baby in the baby carriage, right? The bomb in the uh -huh. baby carriage, the, right. the doll. Yep. Um, it, because there is so much chaos and strife, it really puts you in an interesting place as a member of the audience thinking, what is part of the cultural landscape that we're supposed to get? And what is part of the drama? Mm -hmm. What is part of that primary storyline? Is the baby a part of the primary storyline or is it just, uh, you know, is it another example of, um, you know, the bombs going off because people are in a general state of uh, discord. Yeah. Well, even his boss, um, uh, William Devane's character, is completely apathetic. He's about about it. He's just like, you know, these things are going off all over the place. Yeah, they've been going it, off since the strikes. He it's like he's a member of the division with him, and right. he's completely dismissive of it. Right. Right. I, I think that makes uh, that is such an, a wonderful um, it, it's it gives this film such a wonderful texture. Yeah. OK. Well, and that's yeah, that's what I love. It was just one of the other elements that I just love about it. It really has a, a solid texture all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What else? Uh, what else do, do, do you want to stand? Uh, let's uh, shall we uh, move into um, who's next on our list? We got to talk about Lawrence Olivier. Yeah, I think he definitely needs to be talked about. This is, I mean, this was a real comeback opportunity for for Olivier. You know, he had he had kind of stepped away from um, making films, not so much by choice, but because he was just getting ill. He had been um, really hit hard, and and was almost at a point, uh, or really, he was at a point where he was considered uninsurable. And it was very frustrating for him and, and from what I heard. And he, he was getting like bit parts in, in shows and bit parts in TV series and things like that. But he wasn't getting a lot of the big stuff that he had been getting. 
And what it sounds like is, you know, they really thought uh, Robert Evans, who is uh, one of the producers of the, the film, head of Paramount at the time, um, really felt that he was right for the part, really, really wanted him. And he and his producing partner convinced the insurance company to give them insurance on him for six weeks. That's all the insurance company would insure him for. <laughs> um, and so it's like, uh, it's, it's crazy. You know, they, they've got these limits like that, but he came out, he was thrilled to be back on a, in a film, in a, in a role like this and had a great time. And Schlesinger said that every day he was on set, he was just getting better and better and better. And he was just looking healthier and, her- and healthier and health, more healthy, more healthy. And it really was something that it, it was one of those things where it's just like, this is a man who, you know, supposedly had been close to death, but once he got back into acting and back doing what he did best, he really went on to get healthy again. And he lived until 1989. Wow. So, yeah. And I mean, he did so good. He was nominated for an Oscar for supporting actor in this. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting part. I mean, he has really, you know, in a, a script that's pretty sparse, he absolutely has some of the best lines. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's in some of the greatest context, generally when he's got somebody in the dentist chair uh, you know, I envy you your school days. Enjoy them fully. It's the last time in your life no one expects anything of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even better. <laughs> Thus far, I find you rather detestable. May I say that without hurting your feelings? <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, very very favorite. Uh, it's uh, it is a uh, he he's just got a such a he brings such an elegance um, to a uh, otherwise quite horrifying role. Yeah. It is a really horrifying role. I, I think from this role, I mean, geez, it was, uh, what was he like on the, you know, they have all those lists all the time, like the top 100 evil characters lists. And, you know, I think, well, here it is, American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. Uh, he was uh, number 34 on the villain list. The film was uh, number 50 on 100 Years, 100 Thrills. His famous line uh, is it safe was ranked number 70 on hundred years, hundred movie quotes, um, in one of the most terrifying scenes ever filmed. <laughs> you definitely don't want to watch this film before going to visit your dentist. Oh. Uh, so where do you stand on the torture on how they dis- de- depicted the torture? We've talked a lot about torture on the show. What do you, what do you think about it? I mean, this is a scene where he is a, he was a Nazi dentist and the setup is that, you know, he would take the, the gold out of the, uh, mouths of the of the Jews before uh, burying them. That's the line from the the script, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the the context for us first seeing um, uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman tied up in a in the chair. Right. It's it's pretty horrifying. I mean, being in that sort of situation where you have no um, no control and you're stuck there with this guy who. Uh, is trying to get information out of you that you just don't have. Um, it's it's a really horrifying scene. I love the way Dustin Hoffman plays it when he's answering the questions. Is it safe? You know, I love, mm-hmm. I just love all of that. I also love the way that uh, that Olivia plays the character. He actually, um, I can't remember where he was staying when he was uh, in L.A. prepping for the movie, but he's he was watching somebody's gardener prune the roses and he saw how delicately he and and gently he handled the roses 
and and it the it hit him at that moment he's like that is how i'm going to play this guy i am that sort of artist where i need to uh i need to be gentle and he's my rose and i'm i'm going to be treating him as if i'm pruning his or pruning his leaves and that's that's how he went into it and that makes it that much more terrifying because he's so you know he's so calm and gentle about how he's approaching dustin hoffman that it makes the torture that much more painful oh he's so specific yeah uh, uh when he starts talking about the nerves mm-hmm. and then he yeah. drills right into that front tooth yeah where he says you know oh don't worry i'm not going to drill into the one that's uh that is a bad tooth that's it's already uh, dying that it's already, already dying. dead I'm going to drill into one that's completely healthy because it hurts that it hurts so much more until I get to the pulp, <laughs> the pulp, Andy. Oh, I know. That's... I mean, I've seen some really horrible things, but that one, I mean, just the dentist, the whole idea of the dentist is that's, that's worse than just about anything else. It's, it, it was a genius uh, play by William Goldman in the script coming up with this. It really works, and it, it works in context of the story. It's not that he's a dentist just for convenience sake. It actually fits within his role as an antagonist in the film, and his method of torture fits with what he would naturally do, and it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Now, in the context of the time, you know, my understanding is that it was even more graphic and and horrifying to watch and they actually were like audiences were getting queasy and couldn't even make it through the scene so they actually had to cut it back a bit um but even with what we have here it still is hard to watch yeah yeah it, you know they um uh i i think from what i have read of of um uh, you know of the writing of it of the fidelity of the torture or the violence in general to uh the screenplay in the book it it sounds as though um you know they the movie needed this to display this kind of this level of sort of queasiness even at the time and and yeah. um um you know that it it feels appropriate obviously to me out of in in my own context it just really it it drives home this sense of a character that we are rooting for who has nothing going for him and um just sort of uh reveling in his hopelessness well and it and you know it also ties into the title marathon man i mean a marathon oh, yeah. is is just something that a person uh it's these long long runs that it's about endurance and endurance of pain and starting from the beginning where we see that Dustin Hoffman is a runner who can't beat this other runner we see him already failing all of a sudden now he's put into a situation where now he really has to learn what it is to be somebody who can endure pain and from that moment on when he's captured and he endures the torture and the fake escape and then he finally really escapes and he runs and he runs and he runs and just like really all the way through the end of the film it's like he finally crosses the line and understands what it takes to be this marathon man that he's been striving to be from the beginning mm -hmm. no i i absolutely see that connection and it's you know it, it may seem a little bit obvious until the end when you see him kind of running away the only the, the other thing is you notice that he that uh babe levy is never not running 
even when he is uh he's sort of outside going to school he's running to class he's running to catch up with uh, uh Marta's character he's running right. he's always running yeah um and uh it's a it's a nice sort of character effect that i think plays into um the overall race yeah it is and it it just really fits with the character it's uh it's very interesting yeah yeah fascinating uh let's see who else do we have to talk about well, I think we definitely need to talk about uh, Conrad Hall, the cinematographer for yes. the film. Um, you know, one of the great cinematographers of our day. Uh, I mean, starting way back in in the uh, '60s with things like um, In Cold Blood, Cool Hand Luke, which I just watched again, just a fantastic film and looks gorgeous. Everything about it, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, all the way up through um, the uh, early 2000s when he uh, did Road to Perdition, which was the uh, the last thing that he did. And I believe he won an Oscar for it and his son accepted for him. Um, so it was, uh, it was a, a nice moment. Beautiful, beautiful film. And he's just, he's one of those cinematographers that knows how to make a film look great. This film always looks great. I mean, whether it's running through the streets at night or or in the jungles of Uruguay, or in Paris. It just has that that gritty, realistic feel to it all that, I don't know, it just, it, it always makes you feel just kind of tense, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's It really, I think, captures that sort of realism of of the environment. The other thing I really like is the uh, the way they use uh, and this is as much, you know, Conrad Hall as uh, editing uh, led by Jim Clark and, and Schlesinger is this whole idea of the flashback. Uh, mm -hmm. And and the way we get these, the flashback is done sort of in uh, kind of a sepia in real flashes. Yeah. Like you get a few frames at the beginning of, of seeing uh, the, the uh, childhood relationship between uh, uh, Babe and his brother, uh, Babe and Doc and, and the father. Uh, mm -hmm. And that story plays out in frames. I would actually be interested to know how many frames uh, actually make it, uh, it uh, make up the entire flashback. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, yeah. it can't be many. It is really, really short. And yet, in that, just these little sort of sepia stories, these little movements of a kid on a swing, the movements and the sound of a gunshot in the middle of a completely otherwise out of context uh, or, or loosely contextual conversation between these two characters, it tells you so much about what these guys are going through in the present. Yeah. And it's a great way to do flashbacks. In a way, it, it, this is something I think filmmaking of the time had a really nice way of doing things like that where you don't ha feel like you have to push in on on babe's face as he's staring out the window and then we cut to a flash <laughs> right. now we he stares a, up this, to the middle distance left. that's right right and we we get like this two minute flashback of the whole story it's not like that it's these little flashes like memories come and that's what i really like about them on top of they also have the little flashes of the uh what is the the famous tracks uh the marathon runner that he um i guess idolizes that we keep seeing it's uh right. i can't remember what that guy's name is um but whatever that track star's name is that we keep seeing flashes of him as well so it's it's nice the way we get those little bursts of memory throughout it a baby bicala that's the guy's name 
I I did not know that. I didn't pick that up. I, I had to look that up. <laughs> I was going to say, you are amazing. Yes, I like to pretend I am. Oh, man. Uh, let's see. This was uh, the first feature film that actually was hit that actually hit the theaters that used a steady cam. Right, right. Second film shot with a steady cam, but it's the first one that hit the theaters with it. That's an interesting thing, right? It is a very interesting thing. Absolutely it is. Uh what do you, I I did not I think I would have watched the film differently had I known that before, had I done the research before I watched it. Uh but I did not. And so there you have it. Well, it's, 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 I mean, it fits really well with the context of the film. Marathon Man, this is a guy who's running a lot. Um, so they use that to their advantage by using the Steadicam to really track, like, when he's running around Central Park or any of these uh, running down the, the, the on-ramp to the bridge or whatever. You get these nice, smooth shots that are right up next to him. And that's, that's the context of the Steadicam work. It, it, it came in really handy for what they were doing in the context of the film. So, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it worked really well. And, uh, I think it was, what was the other film that was, that used it first that came out this year? That Wasn't came that, out uh, there? Bound for Glory? Oh yeah, it was Bound for Glory. One of the other right. great 76 films. Yeah. Bound for Glory, uh, Rocky, uh, and then when did, let's see, what was the other one? It was The Sting was another one that was, or not The Sting, uh, The Shining. The Shining. Uh, but that was years and years right. later. But yep. Uh, yep. it's it's fascinating when you read the Garrett Brown, the inventor of the study cam, when you go to to and, and start researching Garrett Brown and the filmography of the early or the mid seventies when these things started coming out. Um it's it's uh, it's interesting uh nerdery. Yeah. It is very interesting. You uh, have you ever done any study cam operating? I've never operated. I've I've been on sets with steady cam. I yeah, mean that's yeah, one of those things you, you really you really want the right steady cam operator to be operating the steady I've cam. I just always would imagine that but you with your, you know, broad <laughs> shoulders. And, of course, of course, right. Yeah. Uh okay. Let's see here. We what else do we have to uh what else would you like to cover on this uh fantastic uh, film? a number of other things. Michael yeah. Small did the score. Yep. I I think uh the music in this is just it's it's a very haunting score. And I think all the way through, it works so well for the tone of the film. Even the love theme that we have between uh, Babe and Elsa is just this haunting, it already feels like a tragic love theme. You know, it's just, it's haunting from the start. Everything about it is creepy and it works so well. We've heard uh, from Michael Small already with Clute and the Parallax parallax view. Yeah, he's really tapped into a lot of that sort of vibe back then. A lot of, uh, a lot of good music. Um, I uh, yeah, really I think this. that's a that's a really good way to to put it. I mean that he has the vibe, and this was really his decade. The seventies were were a uh, I think a great decade for him in terms yeah. of uh, consistency of tone. Absolutely. Uh, when you look at the Parallax View, the Stepford Wives, Night Moves, Drowning Pool, Marathon Man, I mean they all have that same sort of uh, gritty vibe, um, and he you you start seeing a lot more kind of variety. Um, of score out yeah. of Michael Small when you get into the 80s. I think the 70s, you could just listen to an entire playlist of everything he's done and it would just, it would all kind of put you there. Yeah, exactly. It definitely fits the vibe. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely. So, so he was great. Um, a couple other little things. 
um, a, another reason to uh, love Dustin Hoffman for the film. He had already been nominated for three Oscars before he did this film: The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, and Lenny. Mm-hmm. So, so he's already, you know, <laughs> coming into this film, a great actor. And Roy Scheider, who we already professed our love for, he wanted to do all of his own stunts. So that whole stunt scene with him fighting the assassin Chen in the room in Paris, uh, he did all the stunts there, crashing into tables and all of that sort of stuff, um, which was great. He he and Chen, uh, the character or the guy playing Chen, actually choreographed it themselves because they had these stunt guys who had done this this completely ridiculous stunt scene. And they're like, no, we need to make something that's more realistic. Again, kind of tapping into what they were trying to get across in the seventies. Right. Right. No, oh, very gritty. And I think it's, uh, I, I love that, uh, that Roy does that as, you know, I didn't, I didn't know until we talked, what was it? We, uh, was it around, uh, was it uh, French connection? Yeah. We were talking yeah. about French connection. I think we did. I, I didn't know that he was a boxer. Is all. Oh Yeah. Uh, right. I, I had not known that he was a boxer until we started researching that. And so it's it's always fun to see him like when he when we see him, uh, you know, stand up and kind of walk outside and parading around those abs. You know, you're like, man, that's Roy Scheider in his prime. That's right. That is a man's man <laughs> right there. That is. God, a, I just see that. And I just want to punch it right in his stomach. <laughs> I just want to punch it and just break my fist. Like That's the that's the man I want to grow up to be. That's right. Roy Scheider in 1976. That is right. He kicks butt. Ugh. He does. You go Roy Scheider. <laughs> so, um. You know, it's uh, funny. We don't, you know, Roy Scheider and his role in this one. We haven't really talked about that, which is he's he is uh, he, he kind of plays. It's sort of a funny role, right? Yeah. Because he uh, he is a tool of this film, right? He's a tool that that brings the you know Dustin Hoffman's character Babe together with the division, and he plays this role, and he's this you know he's this spy guy, and he does his little thing, but it, it's it's almost not central enough. Um to the film it, it almost seems sort of utility like a utility player um that when it comes to the overall arc of the film do you know what i'm saying well it's it, it's kind of interesting because it does feel like there's this subplot going on with him that we're trying to explore like how does his relationship in this spy world fit with what his brother's world is you know right. and, and and so it feels like there's this subplot until it all kind of comes together when when you see him with zell by the fountain um, and you go, oh, okay, I can, I, I see how it's working now. But it is, it is really interesting. But and I think it's because, um, a lot of it is because he's kind of got this interesting hero slash villain vibe, right. right? It's like you know, he's this, he's working for the spies. He's, you know, he's kind of this, this, this undercover guy in Paris who stops these guys. And but then, but is he see, a double or a triple agent? Yeah, because you see him with the band aid box that the um the dead Zell brother had at the beginning. So he was obviously the one who kind of got it from him and is in the process of this courier thing that he's, he's involved in. So you're like, okay, wait a minute. Is he a bad guy now? Is, is the government involved in this stuff? And it, it plays this really interesting, especially when Bill Devane comes in as kind of the, uh, as Peter Janeway, kind of the, the higher up in the division. And you get this sense from him that, okay, there's this other, when the FBI and the CIA don't want to get their hands dirty, they call the division. So does that mean that they, they're doing stuff that the government is involved in that's bad, that they don't want to get caught doing? It, right. it, it plays this really interesting look at 
what is going on within the government that we need this division that's helping this Nazi war criminal get his diamonds? It back to this whole sense of the 70s paranoia. Yeah. That there, there is go. always there's always an organization that's more secret. Yep. I wonder if he had to watch the Parallax View video to get his job. <laughs> exactly. So, well, and, and you know, to your point, I think that makes um, our affinity with the character of Doc uh, much more difficult to achieve because he's not in the film very long. Um, and we don't know if we're supposed to love him or hate him, even up to when he dies. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. it's it's as complicated as... Uh, you know, Doc and Babe's relationship with their dad. Is he, you know, was he guilty? Was he innocent? Was he cons a conspirator? Was he, you know, or was he just someone who gave up? Like, there is that um, that conflict. Exactly. Yeah. So. It plays really interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm sure you got something else. I, I had two more, two yeah. last little things. Um, one, uh, Robert Town, great screenwriter who wrote mm -hmm. uh, Chinatown, came in and actually uh, was brought in to do an uncredited rewrite of the end of the film. They were having troubles uh, finding the right end. Is Babe going to shoot him? What's exactly going to happen? He's the one who came up with the idea that that Babe was going to make Zell eat these diamonds, which I think is just genius. That a whole end, and then when Zell refuses, I, everything about that ending I find really tense and perfect. I love the way the characters play it. It's great you know, how Zell can tell that he's not actually going to shoot him everything going on there. Really yeah. good stuff. So Robert Town is is the one to uh, thank for all of that. I think that's fascinating. And I, it seems like such a Robert Town way to go. Yeah, it uh, definitely does. Sister, mother, sister, mother, eat the diamonds. <laughs> I won't eat the diamonds. Eat the uh, diamonds. Uh, sister, mother, <laughs> eat the diamonds. There's there's a uh, mashup somebody needs there, to make. exactly there is a uh, there is this weird like I I hit that scene right I hit that sequence even mm. in my latest view of it uh, just this morning I get to that sequence and there's a little of me that says okay we ran out of ideas and so eat the diamonds is what what stuck you know <laughs> and but right. but to your point. Like the first time he says, eat the diamonds, you're just, he's rolling the dice. He's got nothing. The screenwriter, right. I mean, has nothing. <laughs> like he's run out of ideas. But, but I, I think, uh, I think what sells it really here is the performances. This is not, that's not a sequence. I don't know how you could take that sequence seriously on paper and yet to have faith in it enough to give it to Olivier and Hoffman and just see what happens. I, I think when he starts hurling fistfuls of diamonds and watching Lawrence Olivier chase them like a puppy. Yeah. Around this graded floor is uh it is brilliant in its perversity. Mm -hmm. Uh and to see him throw himself off that spiral staircase and ultimately impale himself on his own uh secret wrist blade right. is uh to to watch an to watch not only an actor of that sort of caliber, but uh, uh but an a villain of that sophistication. Right. Uh act that way i think is fantastic i it just i was in it well and that he completely that's that's what it all comes down to for him and it just it it ends up feeling so pathetic and that's what i like about you know uh babe making him eat the diamonds it's just that's how pathetic it is he's like yeah you can have them only the ones that you can eat yeah there's there's something about that that's just 
And then the fact that he does it is just so pathetic. And yeah. this is this evil Nazi uh, war criminal, and this is what he's come down to. And I just, I find it really fascinating. And yeah, it probably is one of those, okay, we need something completely off the wall. Bring Robert Town in. Let's see what he comes up with. Okay, let's go with it. Let's shoot. But I don't know. There's something really twisted and maniacal about it, especially after this is the guy who had been drilling on his teeth. I, I don't know. I just really enjoy it. Well, it is that, you know, we ha- that is the, if, if there's anything to celebrate, it's that uh, Babe has made it to uh, the end of this journey, right? Right, yeah. Because, you know, here we are, we've, we have had nothing really to, to be excited about for this character. Like, he's just been beaten up and drilled on and kicked and tricked and lied to and kidnapped and drowned and uh <laughs> you know the list goes on and he still hasn't run his stupid marathon and yet this sequence when he has this war criminal eat a single diamond mm-hmm. uh this is a place where we get to celebrate him surviving in this world that is otherwise out to get him right yeah, it really is triumphant. And then, you know, it, it it is it's funny how it ends on such a 70s vibe too. You know, it's not like uh you know the there's news like I could see another decade when they made this, you know, you could see him, you could see the news stories at the end of the film, you know, oh, marathon runner saves uh, saves us from this Nazi war criminal revealing him and you know he win, runs the race and you know all these things. It could it could have gone really over the top with kind of the making it feel yeah. very positive at the end. It's it's just such a quiet ending, you know, after everything happens in the uh, water house that they're in um, and, and Zell dies, you know, he just walks out, tosses the gun into the lake and runs off. Yeah, because, you like, know, we oh. all know what happens next. He goes right. back to his crappy apartment that is right. way too small and he lives there across the street from people who hate him. Uh well, they actually they don't not. Him. They end up not hating, but, it, but who who have spent, you know, uh, as far as we know, their existence together, you know, kind of making fun of him. Yeah, uh, it's not it, it's not a great place. It's a it's a, he's in a tough spot, and he's gonna he's been through this horrible ordeal, and he gets to go back there. That's yep. that's his win. That's his win. That's the seventies. How did uh, the, let's talk about the numbers? Well, one last thing. Oh, of course. Yeah, I uh, one uh-huh. last thing. This is the film that is the notorious uh, conversation between Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier with Dustin Hoffman, who is always you know, such a method actor. And, you know, when he was uh, when he was running, he had to go or when he needed to look like he'd been running, he had to go run a mile before they shot so that he could look all sweaty and, and out of breath and everything. And and Olivier notoriously said to him, dear boy, why don't you just try acting? <laughs> <laughs> It's the notorious conversation that has uh, always lived on, <laughs> and it's it's very funny because uh, I think Dustin Hoffman wouldn't sleep at night if his character wasn't supposed to be sleeping, and just all of that sort of stuff. And it's it, you know Dustin Hoffman says you know it, it's a it's a funny line, but it was taken out of context because Olivier was also laughing at at, at himself because he did a lot of the same sort of stuff, and he would, I guess, actors are tend you know prone to to live their characters a little bit you know we we hear this with a lot of uh characters and uh, or right. a lot of actors as they as they take on a character uh but it's just it's really funny that that line has has been the thing that's lived on it it's, it's kind of this notorious conversation between the two of them how olivier could just act he could just do it 
and and Hoffman really had to just you know he had to live it in order to actually make it happen. So <laughs> just a great little uh, little conversation there. But oh, Olivier. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So numbers. Yeah. So this film, uh, from what I found, cost six point five million to make. And uh, I couldn't, I, I, I only found that one number, so I'm just going to go with it. I see that domestically it grossed about $28.2 million. So it did pretty well for itself. It, uh, it, it brought money in. I didn't see anything about international numbers, but, uh, you know, even just domestically, it turned a profit. Big success in 1976. Very popular film. Uh, critics loved it. Uh, people loved it. And uh, people wouldn't go to their dentist afterward, but they all still loved it. And, uh, you know, great film. Great film. Yeah. All right. Let's flick chart it. All right. Add to my flick chart. Marathon Man. Find us at flickchart.com slash the next reel. And you should definitely friend that account so you can keep up with all of the movies that we have done and see how our ranking is doing. Absolutely. All right. Marathon Man or Cloud Atlas? Marathon Man. All righty. Marathon Man or the Maltese Falcon? I hate it when it gets hard so early. <laughs> this is what happens when our list is just full of movies that we like. Yeah. It makes it very challenging. I would I would put on Marathon Man before Maltese Falcon. Would you? Okay. I I gosh, I'm torn, but I think I would agree. I think I would agree. Uh, Marathon Man or All the President's Men? Look at that. All the President's Men. Yeah, 1976 yep. battle. Marathon Man or Dark City? Dark City. Gosh, I don't really? know. I, no, I just, I got to think about that one for a minute. All right. Give, make, it, make a case. Uh, no, I, I'm just, I'm just. No, make your case. I'm not making a case. Is it I, safe? <laughs> that line alone, <laughs> I might say Marathon Man. That whole scene. Um, hmm. gosh, I don't know. I feel like Dark City is what I would pick. Really? Yeah. What did I say? You said Dark City. Oh, I thought you were saying something in contrast. I thought, well, I think I picked Dark City. You can't say that. <laughs> you can't disagree with me and make it an agreement. Uh, I wasn't disagreeing. I just wasn't sure. I had to deliberate on we're it. We're in violent agreement is what you're that's, saying. That's right. That's Let's right. do it. Let's do it. then. Okay, Dark City. Never look back. Uh, Marathon Man or When Harry Met Sally? Marathon Man. I got to go with When Harry Met Sally. Mm. You got just the. You I'm gonna. Know. G- I'll give that one to you, but you know, I'll know in my heart what the truth is. <laughs> Marathon Man or Hot Fuzz? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say Marathon Man, but I want to say Hot Fuzz because of the gargoyle on the head. I'm gonna say Hot Fuzz because. <laughs> Because I just love it so much. Okay, all right. It's just such a. I'm gonna go because that's one. That is an easier one. That like the skids are greased for that one to be put on in my the, house. Right. Exactly. Marathon Man or Social Network. I gotta do Social Network. I gotta do Social Network. Yeah. Remind. Right. I got a footnote to that, by the way. Oh. Go ahead. Keep going. Well, Marathon Man is number twenty-one on Flickchart. No, that feels good. That's actually higher than I kind of expected. Yeah, it did. Well, you know, our flick chart. Uh, it needs some work. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to make a, a comment about um, Social Network. Yes. And uh, our favorite uh, uh, writer. Uh, what's his name? 
Aaron Sorkin? Yeah, Sorkin. Did you catch the uh, the newsroom last year's HBO? Uh, you know, I still haven't caught it. I still haven't. I wow. hear it's I hear it's good. I have also heard it's it's not as great as people were expecting. Um, so I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I don't know. I don't know what that means. I the problem is I I think I the, I read a lot of criticism about the about the show uh, from other journalists, uh, and that is true. I mean, if you've ever worked in a newsroom, mm-hmm. uh, you know there is th- this is not a, about necessarily journalism. This is about an artist's interpretation of what the media should be, and I think if you go into it watching that, you'll you'll have some great joy in. Uh, his work. I just have a hard time not loving every single word that comes out of his pen. Yeah, it's just uh, I just God, it absolutely it, hits me right in the stomach every time his characters speak. And um, uh, Jeff Daniels is terrific. Yeah, Emily Mortimer is uh, pretty pretty darn good, but Jeff Daniels is terrific. How's Jane Fonda? Uh, I haven't got. I haven't gotten there. I've only seen like the first two episodes, so I haven't. Oh, even, okay, I think gotcha. she comes into third, and so I'm. I'm just catching gotcha. up. Gotcha. Uh, and of course, you know, Game of Thrones uh, started this week uh, on Sunday last week. And oh, so I'm still I've, trying to finish House of Cards. I'm just so behind on everything. Oh yeah, you got to catch up. Uh, yeah. Where did you do Game of Thrones? Is that one that's on your list? It's it's on my list. I still haven't gotten into it yet. Right. I, I uh, it's terrible. Uh, terrible. Yeah, that's a that's a, a dying shame. That's a high priority item for me and. Yeah. Uh it's it, the season 3 opener was fantastic. Nice. Man. Okay. That's all I've got. So what are we doing next week? Well, we're uh as everybody knows, we're continuing our 1976 series. So we're we're going to do a hop skip and a jump over to Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Man, that film's demented. It is. It really is. It's a great dark film. I really <laughs> enjoy. Uh, it's it's a tricky one to put on because it it unsettles me, but I really enjoy everything going on in it. You know who would be? Uh, you know who would be in that in a remake of that movie? I'm gonna Chad Stoops, <laughs> Chloe, Chloe, Chloe Grace Moretz. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. They better make it quick though. Uh, it's too late. Yeah, you she's think already she's already playing Carrie. She's already like the, you know, the high yeah. school. That's too late. That's too bad. That would have been a good part for her. It would have been. It would have been. <laughs> All right, my man. It's good talking to you. I think we're done. I'm gonna be finished with this one. Yeah, I had a great bed. conversation about it, and uh, yeah, you should well, let's let's put it to bed, and, and we'll come back next week. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. 
The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.